This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. My purpose is to wake up as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, to help heal our world crises. Any non-dual purist might be quick to point out, wait a minute, isn't that also a kind of sandcastle? A constructed goal? An egoist mission? Yes, it is. And this is where I also want to remind you of my intention to deconstruct any scaffolding I've created. One scaffolding was a neuroscientific story of enlightenment, and I can dismantle that by noting, as I mentioned before, that not only can we never know for certain whether biological brains even exist outside of consciousness, but also no matter how many EEG and fMRI brain scans we use to determine the neurological correlates of enlightenment, all that data will never capture the experience of this. Just like a list of all the organic flavor compounds in an apple, will never capture the taste. And yes, my other scaffolding has been a soteriological or liberatory mission to enlighten. Ultimately, this must be surrendered as well. And this doesn't mean giving up on our world crises because that would be attachment to doing nothing. There is attachment to doing something and attachment to doing nothing. What's it like each moment to let go of all ideas of what should be done and abide as the spontaneous awareness that composes everything. When we get attached to the view of, I've got to do something about these crises, we may go to a protest, rabble-rouse in our organizations, volunteer for a nonprofit, or deliver a talk at a non-duality conference. Not that we shouldn't do any of these things. I've gone to anti-racist and anti-fascist protests, and I am often vocal about the need to foster more equity and diversity within non-dual communities. I also have volunteered for social justice nonprofits, and here I am giving this talk. But if ego is driving the boat, then you'll see toxic dynamics emerge in the work because it's ultimately about fear, control, self-aggrandizement, and rigid ideas about what's capital R right. When the pendulum swings the other way, when we get attached to, there's nothing to do. We live in a 4D black universe and have no free will. It's all complete, so I'll just sit on my couch watching Netflix while the world burns. We are also stuck in an egocentric view because we think we know what's going on and what we should do. In this case, nothing. It's eternalism versus nihilism all over again. What's destroying the planet is ultimately the ego's fear-driven tendency to want to know and control. So both of these seemingly opposite crisis response orientations lie squarely within the bounds of the same toxic operating system. What's it like to shift operating systems perhaps with the help of non-dual psychedelic integration, to one of not knowing and surrender, dancing each moment in, and as the mystery of neither doing something nor doing nothing, says Mark Davis. 
Valeria interviews Mark Drummond Davis. He is a psychotherapist and licensed clinical social worker based in Corvallis, Oregon. He studied comparative literature at Harvard, psychodynamic psychotherapy at Smith College for Social Work, Zen Buddhism with Kwan Um Zen Master Ban Sung, and psychedelic integration coaching with Shiri Malcolm Gadasi. He is the founder of Non-Dual Psychedelic Integration, a private psychotherapy and transformational coaching practice committed to holistically optimizing psychedelic growth with a personalized blend of somatic, mindfulness-based, non-dual, and neuroscience-informed approaches. In late 2023, per Oregon's groundbreaking Measure 109 legislation, he will begin offering guided psychedelic journeys as a fully licensed psilocybin mushroom facilitator. Meet Mark at nondualpsychedelicintegration.com. Here's the interview with Mark Drummond Davis. In your own words, who is Mark Drummond Davis? Well, ultimately, I don't know who Mark Drummond Davis is. <laughs> and that's, I think, part of the, the realization, the living realization of non-duality is this not knowing, this mystery. So it almost becomes a koan in a certain inflection. Who is Mark Drummond Davis? Not having an answer, just sitting with that openness. Um, of course, in a conventional constructed sense, I can, I can speak to the story of Mark Drummond Davis and, and who he is. Um, and yeah, in a nutshell, I can say, um, and I'll just drop into conventional language just so it doesn't get so stilted, um, uh, that, um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a psychotherapist. Um, I'm a licensed clinical social worker by discipline. And I also call myself a transformational coach uh, because the the clinical work that I do is limited geographically to the state of Oregon, where I'm based. I live in Corvallis, Oregon. It's about 90 minutes from Portland. and um, But I'm able to do coaching work across state borders and uh, international borders as well. And I call my practice non-dual psychedelic integration. And so I'm interested in working with people around any of those keywords, whether combined or individually. So um, that could mean on the non-dual side, that could mean working with people with meditation practices, with what are called pointing out instructions that come from the, the Tibetan traditions, the Mahamudra and Dzogchen traditions. Uh, certainly a lot of my clients are very interested in the integration of psychedelic experiences. And so those can be psychedelic retreats and kind of high dose journeys with different medicines. Some people are, are microdosing uh, with different medicines as well. And, um, and the integration piece, the last keyword, refers both to um, the, the integration of non-duality into everyday life, as well as the integration of these peak psychedelic experiences into everyday life. And it also refers to integration psychologically as well. So we're talking about the integration of, of self uh, for those who are familiar with modalities like internal family systems, which look at parts work and parts of the self that may be sort of split off or, or shadow parts as, as um, we would describe in, in a more Jungian kind of sense. And how can we 
bring those into the light of consciousness and have a sort of internal harmony between all these different different parts so we can have more peace and equanimity. So, um, yeah, and that's that's my work in a nutshell. And um, I, right now, since we're still living in the age of prohibition in the United States, that work is limited to integration. So I'm not guiding people on any journeys as of yet. Um, however, living in Oregon, I have the good fortune of of being part of this movement with the Measure 109 uh, laws, which were passed, and so, so I will be in a position in probably late 2023. It could be into early 2024, where I will be able to have a kind of vertically integrated practice, both guiding people on psilocybin journeys with mushrooms, as well as doing the integration work. Um, for now, I when I work with clients who are who are engaged in medicine work, they're perhaps doing it on their own, perhaps sometimes they're involved with underground guides. Um, as And there are also retreats that are legal in other places, such as Jamaica or the Netherlands. Um, yeah. I love this direction. I love what you do. It's very inspiring. Exactly because of what you said, you, you described the destination, if there is one, as being peace, harmony. It's such a wonderful vision and even thought to have, to see this reality more harmonic in harmony, because it really feels like it's not <laughs> a lot of times, but I know it's just a feeling. But the question that comes to me is, how did you become interested in non-duality and also psychedelics? My journey begins, well, I guess at the beginning with my, my childhood, just having a lot of trauma. Uh, a lot of suffering, a lot of depression, anxiety, OCD. I was very symptomatic when I was a child when I looked back. I had all sorts of pretty intense mental health symptoms. And I grew very interested in mental health at a young age. Uh, I would say in early high school, I started reading books on psychology and books on depression. And I grew interested in psychopharmacology because I was prescribed some SSRIs um, for my depression, which really had some very dramatic side effects for me that were very unpleasant. And I remember the psychiatrist was trying to, I was on what they call kind of a prescription cascade where they try to fix one side effect with another prescription and then another prescription. And I just remember feeling so overwhelmed and so confused and thinking to myself, something is wrong here. This this model is is broken. So I started reading uh, what they call critical psychiatry, sort of looking at the discipline of psychiatry and trying to educate myself about pharmacology and about the brain. And it wasn't until college that I first really became seriously interested in Buddhism. I feel like I had been flirting with it a, a bit in high school, just in an intellectual way. But um, in college, I again went through a deep depression. I dropped out of school for some time and I was living in New Hampshire. And there was this Zen community in the town where I was living. And I went there and I was in the presence of this Zen master in this Korean tradition. And I was just so awestruck by the way that his answers seemed to come from some almost like another dimension. People would ask these questions. And I just had this sense of, oh my God, the way that these his answers, they're not logical. They're not even aesthetic or just poetic, but they're somehow 
coming from some other place that feels very uh, non-conceptual, very embodied, very mystifying. And it just touched something in me. I thought, whatever it is that this man is in contact with, I want to know what that is. Um, because it feels intuitively, I felt this is what I'm searching for, because I've been searching in my own mind, using logic and thinking for some kind of answer, and I'm not getting anywhere. And so so I started to meditate more seriously. Eventually, that led to going to Korea and uh, living in a monastery for a few months and sitting sitting a long retreat there, which was incredibly difficult and painful and also just really liberating in other ways. And um, yeah, at some point in my career, I developed a passion for art. And so I was working for a long time. I took a bit of a <laughs> circuitous path. I was working as an artist uh, doing bronze casting and sculpture and so forth. And I realized that I was dissatisfied because I was so much of my ego was wrapped up in in my work. And I was really uh, wanting to be maybe famous or successful or wanting to show people how smart I was or something like that. And I was so dissatisfied. And I, I started to realize that the heart of why I was interested in art was that I wanted to provide an experience for people that was moving and transformative and that would bring them into a feeling of connection. And so when I realized that, I thought, well, perhaps I can do that in a more direct way through through mental health or being um, a social worker. And so I went ahead and did my, my training. Um, and, and so that was sort of my, my path for a while. For several years, I was, I was doing my clinical training. I was working in different clinical settings and trying to integrate Western psychotherapy with my Buddhist practice and my meditation. And there are certain modalities that I think do that fairly well, like acceptance and commitment therapy. And I felt that I was hitting some kind of plateau where something felt very dry in my practice, like I was meditating, but it just felt mm, there wasn't a juice. <laughs> there wasn't the aliveness. Something was missing. And I had a, a, a good friend who was uh, an older gentleman in his, in his 60s who had become interested in, in mushrooms and we were reading about them and had had decided to do a journey together. And that was really the threshold moment for me. It was a fairly small dose, looking back in, in retrospect for mushrooms, but it really just completely blew the top of my head off. It was just extraordinary to suddenly, in a direct experiential way, taste these truths that I had read about and studied and maybe heard my Zen teachers talking about, and all of a sudden it just became so clear. These things, oh, everything is everything is one. Everything is consciousness. There's no inherent boundaries to anything. You know, time and space are constructs. It's all <laughs> this wondrous tapestry of being, and I don't understand it intellectually, but I feel the unity and the expansion and the and the overflowing compassion and healing of contacting that realization. And that was that was it for me. It was, it was, it was so clear. This is what I need to do with my life. This is this is the realization of my journey, personally and professionally, is to, um, to, to you know, to facilitate these kind of experiences for people. And in the spirit of this kind of parts work that I was talking about, I see how every single part of my life, nothing was unnecessary or a kind of diversion. It's all included. Even my 
my work with art for some time that was very ego driven. I see now that this is my art practice. You know, when I'm working with people, it feels like a kind of participatory art experience. There's something, a dance of curiosity, of mystery in the moment. And I work very experientially. And that's all I was ever trying to do as an artist was to to have these transformative experiences. So so that's my passion. And I, um, yeah, I started my private practice a couple years ago. And this has been my exclusive focus is this this integration of non-duality psychedelics um, and and western psychological approaches you speak of something that i never heard about is mesodosing (laughs) yeah i never heard about this yeah that's because it's my own uh, coinage (laughs) for better or worse um yeah it comes from so i'm a social worker and in social work we often talk about working to affect change at the micro, mezzo, and macro levels. And so in the sense that means, micro means working with the with the individual, mezzo means working with sort of mid-level systems, institutions, and macro is sort of working at the entire society. Um, and so I kind of playfully borrowed that set of prefixes to use in describing psychedelic doses. And of course, microdose and macrodose were already in the literature, so that's nothing new. Uh, but I thought, yeah, there's there's some value in this kind of mid-level dose. And of course, I'm also not the first person to do that. There have been people who have done all sorts of dosage ranges, and people have different language for that. They might call it a mid-range dose or a creative dose or something like that. So there's, I don't mean to take any credit. There's nothing really new that I'm doing. It was just sort of a playful word. But the way that I use that term, you know, mesodose or mezzodose, is to refer to a kind of mid-range dose, and this could be with any medicine. I tend to work mostly with with mushrooms, but I certainly have clients who are doing that kind of dosage range with LSD or other medicines. And the idea is it helps to bridge the gap between a microdose and a macrodose. So what can often happen to people is they take a large dose of mushrooms or another medicine, and they have this really transformative experience. So they might feel the sense of unity or have a a so-called ego death experience that's just really a kind of peak moment in their lives. But then the question becomes, where, how can I continue to dip into that realization when I'm just having breakfast or I'm getting a root canal at the dentist or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And and a yeah. lot of times there's a big gap there. And this is this is what a lot of clients struggle with is yes, I I know somewhere intellectually that everything is one because I I have a memory of that peak experience and yet I can't feel it here when I'm just writing an email or or in traffic or what have you. Um now microdosing before we get to mesodosing can help with that. These are very small doses that are sometimes called sub-perceptual in the sense that you're not actively tripping, but there is some kind of shifted perception of perhaps more flow, perhaps more focus. And that can certainly help with integration. And I find that this practice of slightly higher doses, and of course, there has to be a disclaimer here that we have to do this very safely. This is something that you would do at home, uh, you know, just uh, on a, (laughs) a lazy Sunday or something like that. Uh, just meditating, you know, you don't want to be driving or chopping vegetables or anything like that. Um, but but yeah, we're talking about perhaps taking a gram of mushrooms, let's say, and then and then sitting in meditation for perhaps an hour or a couple hours. 
And at that dosage range, something different is happening where there is that that you're ent- slightly entering that kind of psychedelic territory where the sense of the usual reference points of time and space and identity and boundaries are getting quite blurry. And, and you're also lucid enough to continue to stay present for your meditation. Or if you want to do some other just everyday activities. I mean, I've done this just uh, sweeping my garage, you know, and, and that's an interesting, or doing the dishes, right? And so this, this is where you really, in my experience and working with clients, you start to really realize experientially what we talk about with Zen. You know, there's such an emphasis in Zen on chop wood, carry water, and really the kind of sacredness of the, the everyday. Um, and so what can happen is if you if you do, are doing the dishes, or as in my case, I was, I'll just tell this little story of sweeping my, my garage and on a gram of mushrooms. And it was this very interesting experience of feeling the embodiment of sweeping and, and the solidity and coolness of the concrete underneath me. And then all of a sudden having this feeling of just the ground dropping out and sweeping out into infinity for a few moments. And then having everything kind of recondense and coalesce into the smell of the dust and the feeling of the texture of the broom and oscillating back and forth. And after doing that for 10 or 15 minutes, there was just this very crystal clear realization of, aha, this is how it all comes together. Everything is consciousness and form and emptiness are not differentiated. Form is form, emptiness is emptiness, form is emptiness, et cetera, as the Buddhists say. And and that was just so transformative. And having done that even just a few times, it became much more possible to notice that in a persistent way without the use of of mushrooms. So then it became possible to sweep, to meditate, to do the dishes, to just sit quietly and watching the afternoon sun or play with my cats and and have the rich textural experience of that moment and also be in touch with this other mysterious dimension of it that could be described as infinite or boundless. How do you decide who is ready for psychedelics and, and also for the microdosing and mesodosing and also the meditation styles that you use. I know there are different kinds for, depending on the, you call the awakening level of the individual. So I would love to hear more about that too, Mark. Yeah, wonderful question. This is such an important work in any kind of coaching or therapy is is really doing a very careful assessment of where people are at and their backgrounds and certain risk factors and so forth. And so like many therapists or coaches, the process starts with a kind of careful attunement to finding the right client who's going to work well with me. And so in my process, I start with a a questionnaire um, that people fill out uh, and, and the questionnaire is a request for a discovery session with me that, that's free. And in that questionnaire, I'm asking all sorts of questions that I've developed over the years and working with hundreds of different people and having a sense of who works well with me and who doesn't and different personality types and and kind of rule outs and things like that. And I, I, I try to, as much as I can, keep up with the literature on psychedelics and best practices and so forth. So there are just certain rule outs uh, according to what we know um, in terms of risk factors and so forth that I have to be careful about. And also I have certain exclusion criteria just because of my own specialties and just acknowledging the limits of of who I can serve and who I can just because of my own trainings and my own proficiencies. And so 
Um, so just to give an example, typically, and this is true of any clinical study of psychedelics as well, is that if folks are really experiencing very severe pathology, so we're talking about you know very high level of of suicidality, um, where there's not only serious ideation but perhaps you know serious uh, planning and intent and so forth, and other risk factors when it comes to suicide, things like the schizophrenia spectrum and um, and symptoms of psychosis and so forth. These are definitely things to be careful about because it's certainly possible for psychedelics to make psychosis worse. It's possible if someone has a family history of psychosis for it to trigger a first psychotic break. And so, so psych- psychedelics are by no means a kind of magic bullet, as they say, or, or a sort of cure-all. There is... It, we do have to assess to make sure it's going to be appropriate and it's going to be safe. And so, so after people fill out this questionnaire, what I do is I, I look over all their answers very, very carefully. And these are a series of different types of questions. Some of them are more narrative. Some of them are simple checkboxes and things like that. And if everything looks like a good match and there aren't any clear kind of rule outs and I think we're going to work well together, then I will sit with them in this this. 50-minute interview, and it's totally free. And the, the point of it is for us to feel out each other's energy um, both ways, right? So I'm I'm getting a sense of who they are and their story. They're getting a sense of me and my personality and so forth. And we're looking for that energetic click or a match. Because if that's not there, then the coaching and therapy just falls flat. There has to be that sense of aliveness. And and once, I, once we both feel together that that's there, then... Believe it or not, I have them fill out an, a whole nother questionnaire. It's <laughs> <That's> even longer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I've, I'm very careful about this because I, I, I'm hmm. very attuned to detail and I really yeah. want to make sure that people are ready and that I'm not missing anything, right. right? Because psychedelics can be full of unexpected surprises. And so the second questionnaire is much more of a traditional kind of multi-axis psychological assessment. So I ask about everything, about you know health, about medications, about trauma history, family history, different, uh, you know, any diagnoses they've had in the past, all these sorts of things. And so I formed this very complete map of their experience and who they are. And once we go through all of that, (laughs) then we can start to have this question of, well, are you ready for psychedelics? Uh, Once they've they've met all these different criteria. And, And I don't mean to imply that only people who are doing well uh, are candidates because, of course, this is a this is a healing treatment. So, of course, I do serve people who are depressed or anxious who are have trauma. It's just a, it's just about being careful about having making sure they have the right support and they're in a place where they have the capacity to handle this kind of deconstruction that can happen on a psychedelic experience. And um, and so then we we start to talk about dosages and different medicines, you know, depending on what people are looking for. And if someone, if someone's primary struggle is PTSD, it might be possible that an MGMA journey would be most appropriate for them based on the research. If someone's dealing with depression, anxiety, we might be looking more at a psilocybin journey. And, and then a lot of the actual logistics of of dosing and the kind of dosing protocols and what's going to happen during the actual journey, I'm actually in partnership or, or contracting that out to guides. And so I'm not directly there. And so I have people that I trust both in the underground scene 
as well as some retreat companies. So I'm, I'm a contractor for this company called Behold Retreats, which has yeah. psychedelic retreat offerings all around the world. And, and they have their own assessments and their own forms. Mm. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so I can there's a lot of eyes, uh, you know, professionally. Yeah. They have their own psychiatrist who assesses people and so forth. So, so, um, so yeah, we're all kind of, we're, we're all very optimistic and very excited about psychedelics. And there's a necessary caution and care and mindfulness to make sure that people are, are ready. And yeah, in terms of on a, that, perhaps that's the more kind of boring nuts and bolts side of things. When it comes to a more intuitive sense of what people are ready for in terms of the intensity of an experience, you know, whether we're talking about starting with microdosing or, or mezzodosing, or if they're ready to plunge in and go uh, smoke 5-MeO-DMT in Mexico and just completely <laughs> dissolve into the void. Uh, that that's a that's a conversation around around the, the level of of fear uh, and the level of of triggering that comes up, especially as we start to get into meditative territory. And this is this will answer the second part of your question, which is how am I assessing what types of meditation are appropriate? And there's such a confluence, a beautiful confluence intersection between meditation styles and the experience of meditation and psychedelic experiences, both in the sense of this decrease in what they call the default mode network of the brain, where there's less mind chatter and there's more presence. And also in the sense of unity, in the sense of non-dual experience and contacting non-duality. And so a lot of times what I'll start people with is a more traditional, you could say dualistic kind of Vipassana style meditation, where they're just really getting in touch with their body sensations and being very present with their somatic experience of difficult emotions. And we can start to do work with trauma memories and negative self-talk and things like that, just developing this relationship of mindful curiosity. And there's kind of a reparenting component to that as well. And, and then I start to open them up into the non-dual territory and introducing some non-dual moves and pointing out instructions. And that's where things get interesting for me in terms of a kind of acid test of where they are and how ready they are to really open up deeper. Because sometimes I will point people to non-duality in these sort of embodied ways in their senses. And the reaction is one of, of delight, of ease, of openness, of relief. And to me, that's telling me, okay, this person does not have a lot of resistance in their nervous system to this. So they're probably quite well prepared already for a high dose journey. Now, sometimes people will react with terror and there will be a lot of nervous system activation happening. Uh, and so to me, that's a sign of, okay, maybe we're not going <laughs> to send you to Mexico or, or just, you know, fly you to Costa Rica for a, for a, you know, five day ayahuasca retreat or something like that. Maybe we start, you know, maybe we start not even with psychedelics, just a lot of meditation. And then maybe we start small and see, you know, in a half a gram of mushrooms or a gram of mushrooms with a, with a guide. And how do you do on that? And then we kind of go from there. I love that. It sounds, you work and approach sounds very loving and caring to me. And also, of course, sounds spiritual. And that's a term that we use a lot. But what is spirituality? That's what I, I usually ask myself. And I do ask a lot of my guests, too. What is your understanding of spirituality? Do you have one? <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my immediate answer is similar to my initial 
answer to your first question, which is, I don't know what it is. I have no idea what it is. It's a complete mystery. And on a conventional level, it's it's a kind of, it's a word, it's a construct. And when we say the word spirituality, we can notice there might be certain maps or images or phrases or mantras or something that, that come to mind that put us in a certain territory that we're conditioned into. But I don't ultimately know what it is. And again, if I were to go up into my head in this moment and try to give you some kind of intellectualized answer, it would feel so dead to me. It, you know, it wouldn't be doing justice to the vivid, crackling aliveness of this moment, you know? And so I like to, I, I'm, I, I, I enjoy this playfulness with language. And anytime I find myself falling into the trap of making a quote unquote spiritual statement that has a period at the end of it, I like to put a question mark over that. Because if I say something like, let's say, you know, spirituality is recognizing that the ego is a construction or something like that, which sounds really nice and very maybe um, insightful or something like that. But there's a kind of position of knowing in that, right? There's a sense of maybe I'm working within some system like Buddhism or Advaita, and I have some sense of what truth is. And so I'm asserting some sense of truth. And to me, it feels like trying to stuff the universe in a box. Um, but all of a sudden, if we put a question mark there, well, you know, is spirituality the, the, the seeing through the ego? You know, what is, what is this thing we call ego? What, what is spirituality? And if we just relax the habit of going up into cognition to try to contain it and just let it sit, just let it hover. And this becomes a kind of meditation practice. You know, what is spirituality? And then we just sit and let the mind open, let our eyes open and just be quiet. And something emerges and I don't know what it is, but I could describe it as a, a feeling of being, a feeling of okayness, a feeling of completeness and wonder and interconnectedness. And maybe that's something that we could call spirituality if I had to put a name on <laughs> Yes. Um, but in some ways, it's a funny thing because it's, I used to be a really spiritual person. <laughs> yes, I can and I, I used to really be invested in spirituality with a capital S and, and meditation with a capital M and retreats and, you know, and mantras and all these different practices. And part of the beauty of meditation, and, and I think especially of psychedelics, is that there is this kind of sacredness of everything that emerges. And so you can be, you know, just cleaning out your cat's litter box, which is mm -hmm. what I do every morning. <laughs> yeah. And it can become a beautiful um. practice as spiritual as like lighting a, a votive candle or something like that. It, it feels sacred. And so, so at some point, the very construct of spirituality falls away because there's no longer any difference between the spiritual and the non-spiritual. There's just being, which feels inherently complete, you know? <laughs> um, I love what you just said, the sacredness of everything, being able to not know that, but to sense that. Experiences that we tend to avoid out of fear, or we tend to resist. I noticed that with my 
myself all the time. What I tend to do almost immediately is just to be open to that resistance as also being spiritual and sacred. Mm-hmm. And I just mm-hmm. let resistance be. Yes. And everything that comes with it, <laughs> even the anxiety, whatever it is in the moment. So it has been a, a very almost kind of undescribable experience if it is one it sometimes it feels like it's not an experience too which is right (laughs) you can't put words into it a lot of times i use unconditional love for non-duality or anything that has to do with it this non-personal perception of reality of everything of the experiences i mean if we're using words here mark would you say that too would you use unconditional love as the closest thing or nothing to what this is it's a beautiful phrase and I love it. The only time I've seen that phrase become a trap, and this is a trap that I've fallen into. Uh, I've fallen into every trap you can possibly <laughs> think of. I know them so well. Um, yeah. And I speak about that very humbly because I tell my clients all the time, you know, any anytime you're stuck, I, I guarantee you I've been more stuck so I can help you get unstuck. So it's it's a beautiful phrase. The the, the where I see it becoming problematic, I mean, when we recognize that every every phrase is a construct that has can be can have a certain function that's liberating, or it can have a function that becomes an attachment, right? And so sometimes there can be a kind of spiritual bypassing that I've seen with unconditional love, and my sense is that it comes from the fear of death, that there is in our nervous systems such a deep, I'll just speak personally rather than generally, in my, in my own nervous system, I've noticed more and more with practice, just this, this very deep pre-verbal terror of, of death. And even, even beneath the, the fear of death, there's this horror of the unknown, just this feeling of who even is there to die and what even is death. And, and it's something that I feel in my, you know, on my vagus nerve, you know, down in my pelvic floor, you know, these kind of contractions, this, this just deep feeling of unease that is there. Um, and so much of my practice with meditation and psychedelics has been this, this deep pre-verbal healing of whatever that energy of contraction and tightness and tear is in the nervous system and allowing it to, to settle and to kind of liquefy out of its its tightness into something that's that's more in peace and harmony with the mystery of things. And so at times I've found in myself that I've gone through phases where I felt this very strong attachment to love. Um, and I think there can be, again, I have to be careful, not, not for everyone, but but for some people at certain points in their journey, clinging to that phrase becomes a kind of life raft where it's like we're floating in this sea of of fear and of of the mystery and the unknowing and the fear of death, and all of a sudden we we attach we get attached to these these kind of eternalist kind of um, you could describe them as these very grandiose kind of phrases, yeah, such as unconditional love, or a lot of times you'll hear people talk about uh, you know it's eternal, it's it's unborn, it's undying, and there is a a superficial comfort. You know, even if we just say the phrase unconditional love, there's kind of something in you that, ah, okay, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I've I've figured it out and everything's going to be okay and I'm not going to die. And, you know, uh, because, because it's all unconditional love. And 
I find that those the, those life rafts are only temporary because at some point something will happen in, in life that upsets the life raft. And all of a sudden this unconditional love, and I'm speaking just personally, right? Not with any judgment, anyone else. But for me, whenever I felt like I had some certainty, something would happen in my life or I would have another psychedelic experience that would cast it into doubt. And sort of like, well, well is it all love? Well, what about this terrible thing that somebody did? Or what about these these dark shadow parts of myself? Are those unconditionally, you know, sort of, and so I get up in my head. And so, so after a while, for me in my practice, I, I stopped landing as much as I could on any kind of phrasings that gave me a sense of knowing or security. Because I noticed that anytime I do that, there was something in, it was motivated by fear, right? And so, so again, I come back to this, this kind of iterative practice of turning certainties that end with periods into question marks, right? So, so I could say non-duality is unconditional love. And it sounds wonderful. And there's something inside of me that's like, yes, oh, yes. And I can also tell there's a shadow there where there's some other part of me that still is afraid of, of death or of the lack of control and, and, and is taking solace in that phrase and sort of hiding behind it and, and wrapping it around me like a little blanket to feel a little bit better. Um, but if I turn it into a koan, well, is is non-duality unconditional love or, or what is what does it mean to be unconditional? What is love? And all of a sudden I'm in a different space. There's no longer that duality in my being, in my body, in my heart of a fear that's sort of being plastered over by this perfume of hope and unconditional love. There's something else that is much more radical that feels this kind of just humble, vulnerable nakedness of just not knowing, just being in this moment, not knowing what love is, not knowing what conditions are or myself or death or time and space and all these ideas about what non-duality is or isn't and how to describe it. All that stuff just falls away. And here I am right back, you know, smack in, in this experience, in this, this mysterious moment. And I don't know what it is. I don't know how to describe it. And the feeling is there. And then what's interesting is when I let go of trying to find the right poetic phrase to capture it, the fear also is melting away, right? Because then I'm not trying to control it. I'm not trying to understand it. I'm just dancing, as we like to say, um, in the mystery. And that feels like enough. And so that's, that's and it's a, I think it's a continuous practice because our, our minds are so habituated to clinging around concepts and language. And so it is this, de this continuous deconstructive process over the life course where our mind tightens around some notion of who I am and what non-duality is and what my practice is and what I'm supposed to be feeling or how to describe it. And then when you notice that, what's it like to let go of that and come back into the nakedness of mystery? And then again, the mind will tighten. And the more we just practice, it becomes over time, almost like a non-practice, right? Because then who's practicing mm -hmm. it? <laughs> and it becomes much more of a muscle memory and a flow. And yeah, I, I don't know what else to say, really. But it all comes back to this timeless nowness of whatever this is. It resonates energetically, though, because I feel in the body, as you speak to, something was tightening, was really become very constricted. 
And I noticed, ah, it seems like something in me holds on, still holding on to that concept, the idea of unconditional love and love and and everything that comes with it, (laughs) kindness and all that. As a corollary to this, I also don't think we have to set up a kind of tension between the experience of love that might be described with this unconditional love and some other kind of deconstructive mystery that maybe on the surface may feel a bit energetically colder or something like that, because that can be another kind of eternalist nihilist divide, right? Because we can get really into clinging to the unconditional love, or we can get into this sort of edgelord nihilistic, you know, it's all just a mystery. We don't know anything. But what's interesting is when we shift out of the conceptual and into this moment, it's also certainly possible if we have to resort to language to describe this feeling of mystery and wonder as being very alive and loving at the same time, right? It's like when I'm with my my kid and she's just running around and playing and, you know, knocking things over and just being a kid. If there's any part of me that is up in my head trying to cognize that experience as some kind of non-dual phrase, whether unconditional love or or something else or mystery, it's it's already at a remove. But as soon as I open and am just dropping into being with her, there's also this, when, it, when we open, it's almost like the, the heart is allowed to bloom, right? And so there's something that comes alive in as love, not as a concept or a story or as a kind of moral mandate, but that it, it, it feels loving and loving action emerges spontaneously. You know, in, in Buddhism, they talk about Buddha nature, which is, of course, another kind of concept. But in practice, it, it does feel that that our nature arises spontaneously in, to, for lack of a better word, just this, this loving energy um, when we are no longer trying to capture it in, in any kind of concept. Wow. Yeah. So it's sort of a paradox that way. <laughs> I absolutely love everything about what you do, how you do it, and in this openness to life. It's incredibly beautiful to me. Thank you so much, Mark, for being you. Yeah, well, thank you. You've been such a wonderful, generous host, and I feel your warmth and presence, and it's been just such a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you. Do you also meet clients online or accept new clients? I do. Absolutely. Yeah. So I have clients who are are local, as I mentioned, here in Oregon, and those fall under the heading of the clinical social work licensure. But with coaching work, there are no geographic restrictions. So I can see clients from all over the world. And I currently I, I am only seeing people online because my wife and I are who's my wife is also a therapist and um, we are we've been working out of our home since the pandemic began doing remote sessions and we're transitioning to a, another space um, where we'll have a bit more room, an actual kind of journey space set up in preparation for the, the Measure 109. Um, so for the time being, all of my work is actually online, which has been fantastic. It's just so great to for that accessibility and to be able to have clients from anywhere. Oh, that sounds wonderful. So your website is 
nonduopsychedelicintegration.com. So nonduopsychedelicintegration.com. And I'll exactly. have the link on your podcast profile too. I guess I'll ask you one more question to sure. end this conversation. Let me see which one. I'll ask you this one. What is another word for life? What comes to mind? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should know the answer to all questions, actually, <laughs> coming from you. <laughs> In a way, I don't know. I don't know. know is my favorite answer to any question um, because, I, you know, I, I spent most of my life trying to know things. And that, that was always my stuck point spiritually was the intellect and the mind and trying to know. And I think there's, especially in, a, in an interview context like this, that there might be this feeling of I need to posture in some way to show people that I know something. But I'm very open with my clients and with anyone that, I, you know, I'm not some kind of special quote unquote, enlightened person or anything like that. I, I don't, I really ultimately don't know who I am or where I am or what time it is, you know, <laughs> Tell me about time. way. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's the practice, right? It is, is dropping into that kind of not knowing. And I, I, I am obviously very influenced by my Zen practice, which so often in Zen, I talk about this, this don't know mind. Um, and yeah, so Life, I don't know. I mean, life again. It's it's a it's a construct. It's a word. Um, you know, I could I could come up with some fancy mm -hmm. yeah. intellectual definition or <laughs> spin on it. But what even is life? You know, if you went and asked a, um, you know, a, a bird or a tree, what is life? You know, what would they say? <laughs> uh, yeah. And that's the koan again. Can, yeah. You know, maybe we just need to go in the forest and just. Ask, ask the trees <laughs> and see what happens right <laughs> yeah um it's uh what is amazing about the, your answer is that um it is an answer i know it doesn't sound like one but it is the ultimate answer really <laughs> so thank you so much for being open to that too <laughs> to that answer thank you so much for everything that you do again in your presence here today and we'll talk soon bye for now wonderful Mark. okay bye bye valeria bye Thank you for listening. To learn more about Mark Drummond Davis and his work, please visit nondualpsychedelicintegration.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.